You're listening to an archive presentation of Center Stage. This episode was originally recorded in 2002. David, if you had made a pact with the devil, say, when you were younger, and said, I want to pitch a perfect game, but I'll never be the same pitcher again, would you have made that pact? Yes, I think I would have. <laughs> Why? Well, as long as it was at the end of my career. I was 36 years old at the time. I think obviously you're referring to uh, uh -huh. the perfect game. And uh, yeah, it, it happened at the perfect time in my career. You know, it was at the tail end of my career. I'd been there several times close to, right. to throwing a no-hitter with the Mets and, uh, and later in my career with Toronto. And uh, it, was the t it, was a, it was the right time for me to, to do something like that. So at 28, you would have told the devil, come back later? Yeah, come back later. <laughs> Can I have a refund? <laughs> <laughs> That's David Cohn. I'm Michael Kay. And this is Center Stage. David Cohn may have grown up in Kansas City and pitched for five different teams, but he's always had a special place in his heart for New York. He spent six years with the Mets and six with the Yankees, and he has five World Series rings, enough for one hand. In 1999, on a spectacular day in Yankee Stadium, he became only the 16th man in the history of the sport to pitch a perfect game. Please welcome Cy Young Award winner and one of the best pitchers of his generation, David Cohn. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Let's start at the beginning. Born in Kansas City, the youngest of the kids, kind of a sports-oriented family. How much did that play a role in what you became? Well, it was huge. I was the youngest of four, uh, three old, two older brothers, and a, and a father who was an avid sports sports fanatic. And uh, I just followed them around like any any uh, young kid in the family. I, whatever they did, I wanted to do. And we were always in the backyard. There was. No computers, no Nintendo. Uh, you were out in the yard playing wiffle ball or football or whatever season it was, and mom would call you in for dinner, and then you'd go right back out afterwards, and, and you spent all your time playing ball, whatever whatever time of the year it was. Okay, let's say that there's an alternate universe, and your family was not like that, but you were the exact same person. You had all the athletic skills that you possess. What do you think you would have become if you didn't grow up in that kind of family? Well, I, I, I've said before, and, and I've, I'm on record as saying that I, you know, I used to watch the reruns of, of The Odd Couple. You know, I was a big Oscar Madison fan, and uh -huh. uh, just huge. I thought that was that was that was it. You know, an apartment in New York, a slob, <laughs> stuff stuff all over the apartment, chewed up sandwiches laying on on on, uh, on the tables, and then you get to go to the Shea Stadium and cover the Mets, or you get to go to Yankee Stadium and cover the Yankees. And I thought, I really thought at, at one point when I was in high school that that was going to be my ticket. Really, even more so than the baseball and the, and the other sports. I, I had no idea I could be, uh, you know, good enough to be a professional. And the high school I went to didn't have a baseball team. Ironically, I played football and basketball, and I played in summer leagues uh, as far as baseball goes. But I, I really had no idea that I that I could, uh, you know, be on the top level and pitch in Yankee Stadium and do some of the things that I've done. I thought my only ticket into Yankee Stadium might be as a sports writer. Now, obviously, you did all the other things well. I mean, you were like the big man on campus in high school. You were good at all the sports. Why did you choose to pursue baseball? Well, I, I knew um, that, that uh, baseball was the one sport that I thought, you know, when you're standing on the mound, especially as a pitcher, 
that you could control your destiny. You know, you, you didn't have to rely on anyone else. And certainly you need defense and you need, you need uh, things to fall into line for you to pitch well. But there was something about holding that ball in my hand when, when I'm on the mound that, 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 that really was comforting. I, I don't know. I, I, ne I never felt more comfortable than I was, uh, you know, alone out there on the mound. Uh, and nothing happens until I threw that ball. Now, you're not tremendously big. Did you get hurt as a football player? You were the quarterback, so everybody's taking a shot at you. How did that go? Well, not well, but I mean, it was, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we had a powerhouse football team for the Midwest in Kansas City, Missouri, on the Missouri side. And, uh, you know, I knew that I was too slow and not big enough. I, you know, I knew my, the ticket was, was, was my throwing ability. I could throw the football, and I, I knew that I had the arm strength to do something. And if, if, if there was any one thing that I could do, it was pick something up and throw it, whether it was a rock, a football, or even a basketball, throwing it out of bounds full court. Now, one of your first coaches, and really the main coach as a baseball player, was your dad. What did he teach you? What type of coach was he? Well, he he was uh, he taught me some valuable lessons. I mean, not only his passion for the game, but he took me out when I was 12 years old, when I could I could really start to throw the ball pretty hard for a 12 year old kid, and he taught me how to back off. And, and you hear a lot of pitching coaches nowadays that talk about stay within yourself, don't overthrow, a lot of overused cliches. My dad taught me that lesson when I was 12 years old about, you know, how to stay within yourself, how to back off. Don't throw as hard as you can every time. Throw, he taught me how to throw it where you want to throw it, you know, in terms of control. Now, didn't he also give you that little hesitation move that you use later in your career as well where you kind of hung the leg up a little bit? A little bit. You know, I, I kind of was fascinated by watching Louis Tiant pitch. Mm -hmm. You know, I was, I was influenced greatly by him, especially uh, during those great runs in the World Series when Louis Tiant was pitching in the World Series games for the Red Sox and then on and then later in his career with the, with the Yankees. But Louis with the handshakes and the twisting and the turning and the different arm angles and the little hesitation, I just I just found that fascinating. Also, uh, hearing stories about Satchel Paige doing right. the same sorts of things. Uh, he played for the Kansas City Monarchs back, uh, back in the 30s and 40s, and I'd heard stories from him in the area. Now, your dad was not an easy guy. I mean, he wasn't Robert Young and Father Knows Best. He was a disciplinarian, right? Yes, he was. Very tough. Very tough, especially early on. I, they were My parents were under a lot of stress. I mean, like like any lower middle class uh, neighborhood, my father really had to labor. He worked uh, in a meat factory in the graveyard shift. Uh, I used to hear him leave for work about three in the morning every night. And my mother was a full-time worker and raising four kids. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they really had to struggle and they really sacrificed a lot for their kids to put them through private education. And, uh, you know, to this day, I'm real thankful for that. How about the discipline part of it? Was he a real disciplinarian? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, you know, that, that was back in the day when, you know, I went to a Catholic school and, you know, uh, there were no lawsuits back then. I mean, if you, if you, <laughs> if you, did, if you did something wrong, you got, you got smacked around a little bit. And, uh, you know, it, 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 was, it was just par for the course in, in our neighborhood and in the way we grew up. You know, it wasn't overly excessive. I don't feel like I was scarred from it, but uh, I certainly know that, you know, if I did something wrong and I had to go home and tell dad, you know, right. something was going to happen, I was going to be in trouble. What was the first pro game your dad took you to? Do you remember it? Yeah, I do. I do. It was uh, at the old Kansas City uh, Municipal Stadium. It was uh, 1969. Lou Pinello was a rookie there. And I remember running down to try to get his autograph. My dad was pushing me, go get his autograph. And I, I ran down there and Lou signed probably about 200 autographs that day. And I was the last one. And he turned around and walked away because he didn't see me. Wow. Walking away. He didn't see me coming. And, and I've, I've learned now as a, as, a, as a professional athlete myself to realize that it's tough to please everybody. You can stand there before a game and sign for an hour and you're not going to get everybody and somebody's going to be disappointed. Okay. So you end up signing a scholarship to go to the University of Missouri, but then you go to Kansas City, you end up signing with the Royals. Any regrets that you didn't go to college? Yeah, certain parts of me, yeah. I think you Because you look like you'd have fun in college. Yeah, I needed that. I needed that growing <laughs> time in college. I needed that frat house atmosphere. <laughs> I, 
Uh, I took it to the minor league level, and it doesn't work on the minor league level because <laughs> you're, you're expected to be a professional right. at 18 years old, and uh, you're not ready for that. I wasn't ready for it. And, uh, you know, the minor league experience, I spent maybe five, six years in the minor leagues on and off, and it's, it's a tough life, a real tough life in the minor leagues. You don't make a lot of money. You're not ready for it. They don't teach you real-world stuff in high school, how to budget your money, how to get an apartment, how to rent a car, you know, just take care of yourself. I just was thoroughly unprepared for that. Was it the Kansas City Royals? Was that the reason you didn't go to college, or could it have been the Milwaukee Brewers? Would you have made the same decision? Probably would have made the same decision. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to pitch. I knew that, uh, you know, I think a lot of times when you get a scout, if you're an 18-year-old kid and, and a scout comes into your house and wants to sign you, they tell you, oh, well, well you can go to college later. Right. You know, we'll, we'll put this money aside, a little college scholarship program. We'll give it a shot now to play professionally. If, you, if it doesn't work out, then, you, you know, you can go back to college later. Well, 95% of the kids that sign out of high school don't go to college later if they don't make it. And 95% of them don't make it. So, you know, I was pretty naive at the time. But if I had it to do all over again, I probably would make the same choice, even though I do believe that a lot of kids do need that college, college experience. And, and I missed it. Now, Dave Winfield didn't go to the minor leagues. He went right from the University of Minnesota to the big leagues. You spent a lot of time in the minors, as you said, which was tough. Did you ever think about bagging it? Sure. I think yeah. uh, everybody on the minor league level that's been there for an extended period of time, extended period of time wonders if they're ever going to make it. And yeah, there were times when, when I wasn't having any success at all and uh, thought, you know, it's time, it's time to go home and find a real job. Well, a lot of people are happy that you didn't. And although he picked up most of his championship rings with the Yankees, David Cohn first made his name in New York across town with that other team. Well, we'll talk about the Met years when he comes back with more Center Stage. Welcome back to Center Stage. I'm talking to David Cohn, and let's go to 1987. You get traded by the Royals to the Mets for Ed Hearn. That's a good deal. And uh, you joined the team in 87 after they won the championship. How intimidating was that? Because that was a pretty intimidating team. Extremely intimidating team. They were the World Series champs. They were the arrogant Mets, uh, a, the wildest group of guys I've ever been around. And I still love them to this day, but we probably got into some things we probably we shouldn't have off the field. And uh, <laughs> But then again, you know, we did some things pretty good on the field, too. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to fit in when you're a young kid trying to establish yourself, never really been in the big leagues, and you're thrown into that clubhouse. You know what I'm amazed about with you? I mean, you're from Kansas City, Missouri. And, and if you've never been to Kansas City, it is really a small town. And you loved New York. It was almost like you're a New Yorker. How did that happen? Did, was it quick? Did you all of a sudden just walk into the city and go, this is for me? It took some time. It really did. Um, I think um, being around guys like Keith Hernandez and Ron Darling. Ron Darling was a big influence early in my career. Uh, really kind of showed me around the city and, and taught me how to love the city. And I think Rusty Staub did the same thing for Ron mm -hmm. in terms of not being afraid of New York and, and going out in the city and actually getting an apartment in the city. And, and going out to the restaurants and learning your way around and learning about the history of the city and learning about how great it can be when you, when you play in New York and you win. And, uh, you know, I, I'm really thankful for that experience and those guys. Is there anything in Kansas City that prepares you for Manhattan? Well, I know you and I have gone round and round about Kansas City and the Cowtown <laughs> thing. And uh, um, Kansas, Kansas City is very, it has a lot of pride. They try to really, you know, be a cultural city. You know, they have a lot of, a lot of museums, a lot of fountains. And I know you, you probably don't get out of your hotel. Love the fountains. You probably don't get out, <laughs> you probably don't get out of your hotel room too much when you're there. You go uh -huh. right from the ballpark. But uh, no, I mean, no, there's no, there's no comparison to New York, obviously. Um, yeah, it takes some time, it takes some time. But I really thrust myself right into the city. I got an apartment uh, within the second year. 
Um, uh, I met my wife in, in New York, who was a Connecticut girl and who had known New York City, and she showed me around and was a great influence in that area. And uh, you know, so, uh, you know, I had a lot of help to sort of push me into the city and learn about the city. And of course, once you once you taste a little success in New York, uh, you know, you're, you're never the same. You know, you spoke about how wild that team was, and a lot of people say that if it wasn't that wild, they would have won more than one World Series. You think that's accurate? Was it that crazy or do we overblow it? Or do we not even know how crazy it was? <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> no, um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You know, mm -hmm. that team was built on that arrogant swagger. That, that was part of the reason why they were successful because they had that sort of inner conceit that Joe Torre talks about, uh, that, that, that arrogant, the arrogant Mets. And that was one of the reasons why they were successful because they had that cocky attitude. And on the other hand, yeah. There's probably some areas that, that, that hurt us, you know, uh, in terms of off the field things. But I, I still believe that that team underachieved. It's one of the biggest disappointments. You know, when I look back at my career that we should have done more, you know, as a team for the Mets. But, you know, if there was a wild card back then, we might have done more, too. Wild team, wild card, right? <laughs> Any embarrassments or things that, you know, the team as a whole should be ashamed upon uh, about it as you look back? Uh, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put that label on the team as a whole. Yeah, I think some of us probably probably would look back with regret at some of the things that we did. We made mistakes. I know I put myself in a position to make mistakes and be taken advantage of, and uh, I certainly regret that. But part of it's the growing pains. Part of it's New York and the scrutiny. Uh, we played hard. It was a hard playing team on the field. Uh, it was a type of team that after a game, uh, there'd be 15 guys that would go out to the hotel bar right. and have a beer or go out to dinner. And I think that's kind of a lost art in today's game. Now you have the, the old cliche of there's 25 cabs and 25 players. That wasn't the case with the Mets. That was a close-knit team that was, uh, I think, part of the reason they were successful as well. All right. Now you had the journalistic aspirations, as you mentioned. And in 1988, you ran into trouble with that because you had a column ghostwritten in the New York Daily News by a good friend of both of ours, Bob Clappish. Tell us about that. You really got into trouble during the Dodgers series, right? Really did. Um it was a, it was pandemonium during that game. It was uh, Oral Hershiser had broken Don Drysdale's record of 59 scoreless innings. He pitched game one of the playoffs. Uh, we came back dramatically to beat him in the ninth inning. Kevin McReynolds bulldozed, sort of bulldozed over Mike Sosha at home plate to, mm -hmm. for the winning run. And on the bench, there was a lot of bench jockeying going on. That team was a big bench jockeying team, meaning you know, sort of screaming at the opposing pitcher, the opposing manager, Lasorda. I mean, it was back and forth. It was a wild scene with uh, Lasorda screaming at us, and we're screaming at Lasorda and, and screaming at Jay Howe. And Bob Clappish comes in after the game, and uh, and and we sort of get into a con conversation in the clubhouse. It's pandemonium. Everybody's wild and crazy, running around screaming like I've never seen. And uh, he asked me, you know, what was said? What was going on on the bench? And I said, oh, there was a little bench jockeying going on. And, and I sort of told him some of the things we were saying. Right. Not knowing that was going to be the article. And <laughs> under my, your name. Under my name and my byline. I never wrote the article. I never saw the final copy of it. And uh, next day in the paper, it's my picture and, and my byline. And uh, I learned a hard lesson there. Yeah, I think Bob did, too. I think we both, to this day, are still friends. And we talk about it, and I think we both admit that we made mistakes. Um, it was a crazy scene in that clubhouse. And it affected you on the mound, you thought? Uh, just the nerves. I think the, the, when, when I realized that, that that story had gotten out and that I actually finally read it for the first time the next day after it was already printed, I realized that I was in trouble. And you think I, you let guys lost the series because of that? 
Uh, I think some guys believe that, believe that was a turning point in that series. I don't think that's the only thing. I think when you have a seven-game series, there's plenty of plenty of turning points uh, to turn to. Uh, but I wasn't the same pitcher. I remember walking out to the mound for that game, and my legs were heavy. I was like walking in quicksand because I was really? so nervous, and I'd never felt nervous like that before. And and to be a stand-up guy and take you know take the fault and take the blame for that and say I should have known better, and to go back out and pitch game six and pitch a gem and push to game seven really was a was a, was a learning experience and a turning point in my career. Okay, then you end up getting traded from the Mets to Toronto. Now, Toronto's a very cosmopolitan city, but it's not New York. How tough was that? Well, it was real tough. It was one. It was it was during uh, 1992 when the trade deadline came and went, and right. uh, it seems like whole rosters of teams got through waivers. And in order to get traded after a trade deadline, you've you've got to clear waivers. And somehow I did. I you know anybody could have blocked the trade by just claiming me on waivers, and I could have reverted right back to the Mets. And uh, there's some strange goings on there. I don't want to say collusion with the owners, but it was a strange year in terms of the waiver wire. And I was traded at the end of August. Why did the Mets trade you though? I mean, because you were a great pitcher. Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, uh, I was a little too hot at that time. You know, there's some things, uh, that were happening with that team and the team was kind of going downhill and there's a lot of negative publicity and, uh, you know, maybe it was, they thought it was just time to, to cut loose. And, and then also maybe they thought they could sign me back too. I think at the time that I was traded, they might've considered going ahead to try to sign me back in the off season. But, uh, you know, I think, you know, obviously it just didn't work out. Did it tear you apart that you had to leave the Mets? Yeah, it, it did at first. It really did. Uh, I was thoroughly depressed. I remember sitting in my hotel room in Toronto, just kind of chain smoking cigarettes, you know, and, and at that point in time and just thinking, what happened? I feel like a drifter and what, what's going to happen to me from this point on? And all of a sudden now I'm the hired gun. And if I don't come through for this team in Toronto, then, you know, after I've only been there a week, right. the whole country of Canada, I felt like the weight, the weight of the country was on my shoulders. Well, he ends up becoming a Yankee and coming up next, David Cohn, Puts on the pinstripes as center stage continues right here on Yes. Welcome back. My guest is David Cohn. Last we left off, you were in Toronto. You end up winning a World Series there. Then you become a free agent. And you almost became a Yankee then. How did that break down? Well, it, it really did come close. But I think Maddox was their number one choice. Um, lo and behold, out of nowhere came Ewing Kaufman, the late owner of the Royals, came in and said uh, at the time he was dying of bone marrow cancer. And uh, he's a self-made billionaire and a local guy in Kansas City. And he said, I want to rectify the worst trade Kansas City's ever made. We want to bring you back home. And I want to give you a $9 million signing bonus and a three-year deal. And we want you to come back and lead our team and get involved in the community with charitable activities. And uh, But I need to know now. And uh, he So put, it was take it or leave it? It was, wasn't a take it or leave it, but it was as close to take it or leave it as it can get. And, uh, you know, I, I thought about it uh, for about... 90 seconds and uh and uh i i knew that the yankees wanted maddox at that time we we had gone round round and round enough to know you know which direction i was going to go and, and going back home to kansas city kind of intrigued me getting back involved with my, the high school I, I went to uh the little league i played for i still sponsor teams in the little league i played for and uh, going back home to kansas city was kind of intriguing too as well not that you didn't make money with the mets and the blue jays but what's it like for a kid whose dad worked in a meat packing plant to have nine million dollars waved under your nose, I mean, is it almost surrealistic? It was absolutely, you know. And I, I think, I think, uh, you know, the, the misnomer nowadays in today's sports is that you know people sort of say, well, we can't identify with that kind of money. Ball players make too much money. It's billionaire owners and millionaire ball players, and mm -hmm. the hell with all of them. But you know, the ball players are closer to the average average people. I think most of the ball players are from modest backgrounds. And the best day of my life is when I went to my dad and said. You don't have to give up, get up at 3 o'clock in the morning tomorrow. You know, you can retire. I'm going to take care of you. So you can see it, you're still emotional about it. I mean, it still means a lot to you, right? Yeah, it was by far the 
the best thing that's happened to me in my career. You want to, as far as the money goes, is to be able to just say, Dad, that's it. You don't have to get up and go to work. And, uh, you know, it, it meant a lot. Your second stay in Kansas City turns out not to be that long, and you end up getting traded back to Toronto. And you really are, at that point, a hired gun. People want to win the World Series. Let's get David Cohn. Did you like that? Did you not like that? Did it feel cheap? What, what were the emotions? At first, I thought it was kind of a slam. You know, it was sort of everything is wrong with today's game. He's just a hired gun. But then I sort of embraced it. And I said, you know what? It takes, takes a certain type of personality to be able to step in here and handle that pressure. Then you end up getting traded to the Yankees. And right in the middle of their 95 run, uh, 94, they had the best record in baseball. Then the strike hits. 95, they're kind of far behind, but they make the trade for you. And you're right in the middle of this unbelievable run where they get back to the playoffs for the first time in 14 years. You're back in New York. What's that like? And how different was the Yankees from the Mets? Well, it was incredible. I mean, uh, I was just hoping beyond belief that the Yankees would trade for me at that point because Toronto uh, had fallen apart back in 95. And uh, I remember thinking the Yankees kind of got kind of got screwed in 94 because of the strike and they mm -hmm. were in first place. And here they were. They were struggling that year. Don Mattingly's at the tail end of his career. God, I really want to go there. Just, just give me a chance. And the trade came through. I was just so thrilled to be able to go back to New York and then leading up to the playoff run where we just won almost every game down the stretch to win the wild card was was an incredible experience. Even leading up to, as you well know, the, the first playoff game when Donnie runs out on the field and people are chanting Donnie baseball. Most amazing thing. And then the upper deck was shaking. I remember driving from my uh, apartment in Manhattan to – uh, kind of up up the FDR, trying to get to the Deegan to get to Yankee Stadium, and there was a caravan already forming, and people recognized me. I was I had an SUV, right, and I almost had my own parade leading me. I was a starting pitcher. Right. It was it was a surreal scene. I was a starting pitcher of that game, and people were sort of honking at me, waving, encouraging me, and kind of leading me, letting me cut in front of them to get to the game so I could pitch. I was worried if I was going to make it on time at that point. <laughs> now I remember the one thing that stands out about that '95 season is. Yankees have the 2-0 lead against Seattle, and uh, then you end up blowing it. But in that fifth game, the 147-pitch effort, and I'll never forget the 147th pitch, that splitter to Doug Strange. Was that about as far as you could go physically for you? Absolutely. I think it was. I think um, I don't have any medical proof. I can't really say that was the case, but I think that was probably the beginning of the aneurysm. It's right. The following year, the next spring train, I showed up, my fingers were started, started to feel numb and tingling, and... And uh, from there, you know, obviously I, I was diagnosed with an aneurysm shortly thereafter. But I remember just letting it all hang out in that game and just trying trying to hold on. We had Mariano Rivera sitting down there in the bullpen. But you didn't know who he was we yet. Didn't, we didn't know. We didn't know what we had. <laughs> <laughs> so go figure. But we did bring him in. Mariano actually relieved me after I walked mm -hmm. in Doug Strange with the splitter. Mike Stanley was the catcher. And, uh, you know, I, I knew I didn't have anything left. And I said, maybe, I, you know, I'm – Famous for throwing off-speed pitches on 3-2 counts. And there were a lot of people second-guessed that pitch. And I think it takes some guts to throw a 3-2 splitter with the bases loaded, even if I did throw it in the dirt. But <laughs> but uh, I just remember that feeling of total exhaustion after that game. And just I almost collapsed and fell down on the mound. I think I don't know if you ever saw my reaction. I kind of reached down and grabbed, grabbed, grabbed my shoes almost and just hunched over. And If you had guys had won feeling. that, could you have pitched in the – championship series and a world series would you have been able to i would have been seeking some some needles and some cortisone shots and, really and i definitely would have needed some help at that point yes all right let's fast forward we have to hit the button okay 96 right. you guys win 97 you don't 98 one of the best teams ever and then 99 we come to the perfect game 
I mean, the confluence of events that happened that day with Don Larson and Yogi Berra there and shaking the hand and all that, and then you end up pitching a perfect game. Take us through that that day, and does it still seem like it didn't happen? It does. It, it, yeah, it is. It's It still mystifies me when you think about the, the, the surrounding events. I remember warming up before that game and just watching Yogi ride around in the golf cart, sort of waving at everybody. Yeah. And, and I'm just sort of happy-go-lucky, just playing catch with Joe Girardi, warming up before a game at Yankee Stadium. We have a sellout crowd. And I think it's just what a great day. I'm just going to have fun today. It's Montreal. They they swing the bat. I'm going to get some good stuff. And I know that you know I have a chance to get some strikeouts today. And, and I just let it fly. And I just remember this carefree attitude and shaking Don Larson's hand before he threw out the first pitch to, to Yogi and, and sort of getting it wrong to saying to Don, are you going to go jump in Yogi's arms again? He said, kid, you got it wrong. He jumped in my arms. And, <laughs> so just, just laughing and being carefree and just kind of let it go that day. Now, it was a rain delay, too. And uh, I think the game was on uh, Channel 5 in New York. They, they played the Simpsons during the rain delay. <laughs> so those that stuck around got to see you uh, make history. But at what point did you say, hey, hey, this could happen? Right around the fifth inning, after the fifth, even though it, I, I knew – that during that time, I kept telling myself, don't think about it yet. Don't think about it yet. Well, I was already thinking about it at that point. So right. it was too late. It was definitely too late. And I knew I had some good stuff that day. So it was in the back of my mind. I'm 36 years old. I've been close many times, going all the way back to the Mets. And I've lost no hitters in the eighth and ninth innings and never have ever been able to break through. And I said, this is it. This is probably going to be my last chance at right. this stage of my career to do something like this. The collapse is perfect. I mean, now that's forever in baseball lore. You know, David Cohn's collapse and you grab your head. I mean, did you even know what to do with yourself? I really didn't. I really, I mean, it's not like you sit sit there in the ninth inning as I hear you and John Sterling telling me I have a perfect game and hey, I'm going to do this, you know. I'm going <laughs> to throw this pitch. And I'm going to do a little dance. Or <laughs> You just don't, you don't do that. I was just so worried about blowing it, you know. I really, I mean, I, a lot of sports psychologists would say that's the wrong idea. You know, you, you should think positive. But, you know, I was just the opposite. Don't blow it, you know. I mean, just stay right where you are. You got it going. Just do not blow it. Just keep doing what you're doing. Make the pitches. Take your time. Make sure you know what you're doing and, and just get it done. And the pop-up, when it's up in the air, does it seem like it's there forever or is that just to us? Uh, it seems like it's there. It seems like the, the sun was setting over on that side of the stadium. As, as, as I threw the pitch and looked up, I looked up and was blinded by the sun. Something blinded me, and that's why I sort of pointed up at the sky, you know, because I thought maybe maybe Scott Brocious got blinded too. Maybe he doesn't see it. <laughs> so, but he saw it, and uh, so – so uh, I really didn't know how to react. That was just, um, you know, that was just a natural reaction from an exhausting, exhilarating day. And it was extremely hot that day. And anybody who was there at, that, at the stadium that day remembers. But. That was a great moment. Great moment. When we come back, we'll talk with David about his great rapport with the fourth estate and how he balanced that with being a good teammate. That's not an easy task. That's all next. So stay with us. This is Center Stage, and my guest is David Cohn. You know, you're one of the athletes that everybody in the media, we talk about how David gets it. But that's a really thin line, because I've seen athletes before that are great with the media, and their teammates don't like that, because they look at it like you're sucking up. Right. How did you walk that line? Well, I think uh, in New York, it's a little different, for obvious reasons. I think a lot of times, guys like Paul O'Neill or some of, some of the everyday players, Tino Martinez, don't want to deal with a day-in and day-out basis uh, questioning before games when right. they're trying to prepare. And a lot of times the writers, they have a job to do. And if you have a respect for the job they have to do, then then you have to give them something. 
And I thought that if I could be a go-to guy on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, that, that I was doing them a service. And I think they came to realize that at some point. Sometimes they look at you, though, and and again, I've seen it with other players. Did anybody ever give you any grief about, oh, Coney's talking to the media again? Did you ever hear that? Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was all good-natured, uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's something you have to contend with. Uh, I think um, um, it wasn't as if I was a rookie doing it. You know, as a right. various, it can only be an established kind of a veteran player that can get away with it, that kind of knows what he's doing. The, the best part is, is that when a guy starts on the day of a game, they you can't talk to them. But David Cohn would actually seek people out to talk. Uh, how come everybody else has to concentrate so much and you're willing to talk about anything, even the, five minutes before you're going out on the field? Well, it's sometimes it helps you stay loose. Uh -huh. You know, I mean, and a lot of times we'd be talking about different issues. It might be political issues. It might be who's running for mayor. It might be issues to do in New York City. I really, really had a you know, a healthy respect for not only the job the beat writers had to do or, or the media in general, but also the, I think that uh, that's why there's a writer's wing of the Hall of Fame. I've learned a lot along the way. If I had something, you know, that I didn't know, I wanted to go and get some opinions and f to help me form my own opinions on a, on a topic, whether it be, you know, related to baseball or not. In 2000, you had Roger Angel, the great writer, follow you around and write a book. Now, 2000, unfortunately for you, was an awful season, but you stayed with it. I, I, was there one point where you said, get out of here. I, I don't want you around. I mean, did you ever think about reevaluating? Oh, I don't want this guy doing this book. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. And I, I think, um, you know, I, I still feel kind of guilty because I didn't give Roger, uh, who, who I think is the greatest baseball writer and mm -hmm. just a wonderful man. Uh, I didn't give him enough of myself that year. I remember Roger told me a story about where he was up in the press box walking around and Bob Shepard, the voice of the Yankees, uh, went up behind him and said, forget the book. <laughs> Roger told me that story, and uh, you know, Roger's a great guy and a great writer. And uh, you know, I, I, I think you know the fact that I had such a bad year that year affected not only the book, uh, even though it was some people think it was a pretty good book it's because good it was book. a different side mm -hmm. to the story. It wasn't the, the 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 great star in the prime of his career. It was a guy falling on his face in the middle of his career, and 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 uh, you know, really going through a really tough time. How tough was that for you that year? I mean, were you dying every day? Yeah, I was crushed. I was crushed. And a lot of it was a delayed reaction that led into the offseason. And I really didn't know what to do. Uh, do, I, do I retire? Do I try to go back to the National League and go somewhere else? Do I sign back with the Yankees? And I think that's one of the reasons why things kind of broke down and I ended up going to Boston was because I just didn't know what to do. I was completely lost and crushed by that year. And, uh, you know, I mean, what do you do? Turns out I end up in Boston playing against the Yankees, uh, you know, and, and uh, some remarkable games. The weird thing is we open up the show with the devil question. As you're going through that season, do you think this is my payback for getting that perfect game? Did you ever think things like that? Sure. How could you not? How could you not? I mean, I, I don't. I don't say that I'm a real superstitious ball player, even though there are a lot. And I've played mm -hmm. with a lot of guys who are sl a slave to their superstitions. I'm n I've never been that way. But I had to wonder in the back of my mind, you know, maybe this is payback for something. And, uh, you know, the one thing I'm proud of in that year, though, is that, that you know, there were times when I was hurting that I just kept taking the ball. I kept pitching, pitching through it. And, uh, you know, I could have easily gone on the DL. I could have said, hey, give me, give me a month off. Let me go down to Tampa and work things out. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't have kept pitching, kept pitching, kept struggling. Finally started to turn it around at the end of the year. The ironic part is, and I dove in Kansas City for a ball and dislocated my left shoulder, and, and, and I was done at that point. But you ended up getting a pretty big out in the World Series. What was that like to come in and face Mike Piazza? I mean, they relieved Denny Nagel, and it's not like they brought you in to get Ray Ordonez out. You came in, 
in your old ballpark to get Mike Piazza. Yeah, yeah if you can picture that, I mean, you can, you can imagine. I I was starting in the World Series the year before. I threw a one-hitter against the Braves in 99, and right. here I am. I'm sort of like the kid on the outside looking in. You know, the former Met the, and the Yankee, a guy who had played 12 years of his career, and I'm not going to be allowed to play in the Subway Series. But Joe Torre uh, took care of me. He got me in there for that one out. And I think he was going to leave me in that game, but I, uh, my, my at-bat came up. It was the National League Park, and Jose Canseco ended up pinch hitting for me. But just to get that one out, and if that's the last out I ever got with the Yankees, then you know, I'm, I'm, I'll forever be thankful to Joe Torre for at least getting me in that Subway Series for one out. Well, when we return, David Cohn turns from pitching to catching, catching questions from our center stage audience, so you don't want to miss that. Welcome back to Center Stage, and David Cohn is our guest. Before we go to the audience, we do have an email question. This is from Jacksonville, Florida. His name is Arnie, and he wants to know what went through your mind as you looked in the stands and saw all those people wearing those silly cone heads. I felt felt a lot of pressure, actually. I didn't want to let them down. I didn't want, want those guys to turn on me. But, um, yeah, I, you know, that, that was um, started by a good friend of mine who's become a good friend of mine, Andrew Levy. And right. uh, it was his brainchild. We were all big Saturday Night Live fans. And uh, since then, I've come to get to meet Lauren Michaels and, and some, of the, some of the actors on there. But I remember looking up there while I was pitching going, yeah, I better pitch good tonight. You know, it was kind of a motivator. It really was at uh -huh. that point as a rookie with the Mets sort of thing. I don't want to let these guys down. Now, speaking of Saturday Night Live, Derek Jeter hosted. I, I can't believe that you got dressed up as a woman. And I got to admit, you were pretty hot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, it was... Uh... I kept the miniskirt, too. <laughs> well, you were better looking than Wells, I'll tell you that. I showed some leg. Yeah, yeah you I did. a lot leg. of leg. All right, let's go to the audience now. You're first. I, I always look forward to it when you're in the booth and you seem to have a lot of fun. I was wondering, what's it really like to work with Michael up there? Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, well, Michael and I have known each other for years. I mean, he's going back to his beat writer days, but uh, I think he's done a great job in the booth. Uh, you know, and, and, <laughs> He's, he's made it easy on me whenever I come into the booth. And we were just talking about that. Michael and Jim Codd are so giving. You know, it's a lot of times if you're a third guy in the booth or a rookie, you know, a lot of people are resentful of the, the ball player jock who thinks he can just jump into the booth and do a good job. And you can't. Do you like the broadcasting? I do. I do like it. I, I, I have a whole new appreciation for it. Uh, you know, I, I think it's another way just to, to stay connected to the game, stay connected to the fans, and maybe say one or two things during a, during a broadcast that they might not have known or they might find interesting. You're next. Hi, Dave. Um, David Wells has a Babe Ruth cap as one of his most prized pieces of memorabilia. What's yours? Well, I, I've never told anybody this, but um, when I threw the perfect game, I wore two different jerseys that day, and the Hall of Fame came and, and asked for the jersey. And I said, sure, you can have it. And they said, oh, you're a great guy. And I had another one. So, <laughs> so, so I kept that one. Why did you wear two? You just changed in the middle of the game? Because of the rain. And one got soaked and it was wet and just thoroughly. It was so hot that day. And then we had, I got rained on and uh, it was just, it weighed 10 pounds. You know, those, those jerseys get really heavy when they I get wet. I bet you got the last out one. Uh, I'm not saying. I'm not saying which one. I'm not saying which one I sent to the Hall of Fame. Well, David Cohn is a man of the people, and he continues to be grilled by the people when we get back on center stage. We're back on center stage with David Cohn. Before we go back to the audience, I know you run a softball charity that really raises a lot of money. Tell us about that and where the money goes. Well, we try to we try to mix it up. You know, we we 
there's a natural connection with the ALS, the Lou Gehrig's disease. And, uh, you know, I've been involved with them for a while. I sort of took over for Mattingly. There's always been a Yankee player that's carried the baton. I'm also involved with the bat organization, baseball assistance team that helps out a lot of the old time ball players that didn't make the big bucks. Uh, Arthritis Foundation. Uh, there's several different charities. I don't like to target just one mm -hmm. and, and, and be the champion for that. I like to spread it out and, and involve more. And I'd like to even do more with other players and their foundations and kind of try to bring it under one umbrella. It's a nice thing you do. It really is. Let's go back to the audience. Yep. Thank you. Hi, David. You're an example of a pitcher who learned new pitches, new arm angles well into your career. Is that the kind of thing that a, a pitching coach can teach pitchers, or has a pitcher got to work it out for himself? It's definitely more of a feel thing. It's an individualistic kind of a feel thing. I don't know. I guess you could equate it to a golfer that that comes up with different shots or creates different shot, shots. But uh, I, as I said, going back to watching Louis Tiant and uh, when he pitched for the Red Sox, I was always fascinated with that. And I'd always sort of toyed around with different arm angles as, as a kid. And I think it's just it's, it either comes naturally or it doesn't. I don't I don't really think it's something you can you can teach from a pitching coach standpoint. Do you miss the game? Absolutely. Yes, I miss the game. Is yeah. there a pull? Yeah, I've been kind of lost this year. I've kind of been in the twilight zone, uh, you know, in, in terms of was it the right time to walk away? Uh, do I still want to pitch? When I'm when people ask me that question, I say, yes, I still want to pitch. But will I pitch again? I don't know. You're next. Hey, David. You played for the Royals, the Mets, the Red Sox, Blue Jays, and the Yankees. What do you consider yourself and why? I have fond memories everywhere, but I'm a Yankee at heart. Because of that, did you feel like a traitor when you went to the Red Sox? Was that a tough thing or do we just overblow that? Um, well, it was, it was a little different circumstances. Yeah. I was a little worried about that, that notion, right. you know, that uh, you, you cross the line and that's it. But uh, I think, you know, having gone four and 14 the year before at the Yankees and kind of falling on my face and not knowing which way to go. And then all of a sudden I'm out there without a job mm -hmm. and Boston kind of comes in and says, okay, we'll give you a chance. It wasn't as if I chose one or the over the other. It was right. sort of, this guy can't pitch anymore. He's probably washed up. It was the perception. And, uh, you know, I was just kind of dangling, hoping somebody would give me a chance, and Boston gave me that chance, and I'm thankful for that. Well, we know David was a great pitcher, but we also know he was never much of a hitter. We'll flash him our very own hit-and-run sign when we get back on center stage, so stay with us. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to center stage, and David, now is the time. Hit-and-run. You know what it is? I've seen the show. Okay. Yes, I have. <laughs> I'll say something. You give me the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay, here we go. Favorite movie? Bull Durham. Really? Why? Is it, is it close to life? Well, I, I can just relate to that minor league level kind of a thing, that minor league life, mm -hmm. you know, because I lived it. Favorite song? Uh, favorite song would be, uh, you know, growing up, anything by Led Zeppelin. You know, it was a 70s rock, rock and roller. And then my brother introduced me to Rufus and Chaka Khan, and that kind of changed, <laughs> changed my mind a little bit. <laughs> favorite uh, musical group? Would it be less well, up? yeah, growing up, growing up, uh, but you know, it's changed over the years. Obviously, um, you know, uh, currently, you know, I like uh, somebody like uh, loves Sting's work, mm -hmm. uh, Dave Matthews. Favorite food? Well, I'm a Midwest guy. You know, good, good steak. Favorite athlete? Uh, now, you know, growing up, growing up, it was George Brett. Right. In Kansas City, he he to me was was just a gamer. He put Kansas City on the map in uh, in those battles with the Yankees back in the seventies. Anybody's been around a while remembers some of those some of those games. So growing up, it was George Brett. Now I'd probably look at Michael Jordan the way he's handled himself, and uh, and even a guy like Derek Jeter. I just think 
you know, they're so classy in the way they handled themselves, the way they handled their fame. And, you know, that's what impresses me. Favorite sport to watch other than baseball? It's becoming golf <laughs> quickly. To watch it's it, all, really? It's, it's, all, it's all I have, uh, you know, nowadays. But, uh, no, uh, other, you know, I, I was always, uh, you know, uh, a big basketball fan. You know, I played basketball in high school. I still enjoy watching it. Watched the Nets and watched Jason Kidd and the run they had. That was pretty remarkable. Favorite sport to play? Would it be golf now? Now it's golf. It's the only thing I can play. I can't play basketball. <laughs> it's a lifetime sport. I'm into lifetime sports now. So <laughs> Shuffleboard's next? <laughs> Shuffleboard's next. <laughs> Favorite city? Other than New York, obviously. No, right? it could be New York. Well, it's New York all the way. Okay, then give doubt. me the second one. <laughs> um, the second one would be uh, a tie between Boston and San Francisco. Favorite book? Uh, I read the, red, the, the Hunt for Red October. I thought it was a pretty, pretty interesting book. Favorite actress? My favorite actress would be, uh, uh, I've just always loved Susan Sarandon. There's just something about her. I just think she's a great actress. And uh, you know, maybe it's the Bull Durham thing. I Annie. Don't know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's the Annie thing. <laughs> favorite actor? Uh, favorite actor, uh, you know, a lot of people would go right to the top and say, you know, De Niro. But, you know, the guy who I, who I really like is Harvey Keitel. I just think he is, a, is just a great actor in some of the roles he's played. Favorite moment in your career? Uh the 96 World Series, winning that, coming back. You know, I could say, you know, on a personal note, you know, obviously some of the injuries and coming back from those, but from a team standpoint, being down 0-2 to Atlanta and coming back and winning that game against Greg Maddox and looking up at that upper deck shaking in 1996 with a full moon. I still remember that like it was yesterday. It was a full moon. Joe Girardi hits a triple to center field off of Greg Maddox. We take the lead and close it out. Mariano Rivera came in. Wetland closed it out. Charlie Hayes catching the pop-up. I'll never forget it. Favorite TV show? Odd couple, all the way. <laughs> with, with a close second to all in the family. All okay. in the family. And finally, the person you would most like to have in a foxhole with you. Oh, it wouldn't be Felix Unger. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take Oscar over Felix. Okay. Oscar's in the foxhole? All right. Good enough. David Cohn gets the last word on center stage. Well, really, I do, but it sounds better that he will. So that's next on center stage. Back here on center stage, and uh, David been almost an hour. I've asked every question that I wanted to, well, almost everyone. And uh, now I want to turn to David Cohn, the journalist. What would David Cohn, the journalist, want to ask David Cohn, the pitcher? Well, I, right now and presently, uh -huh. I, I would probably ask, uh, you know, just how tough it is, has it been not being able to do what you love, not being able to pitch. And do you still throw? Do you still want to pitch? Okay. And now you have to answer those questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, it's been unbelievably difficult at times, and I thought long and hard, you know, do I want to go anywhere else and pitch at this point? You know, I left the Yankees to go to Boston. If I'm going to pitch again, it's going to be for the Yankees, or not at all. And uh, if it's not at all, I'm fine with that. Really? Now, the one thing that always struck me about you is that you almost seem like you could be a politician. Did those Mets days ruin that, or do you, <laughs> would you think about doing that? You hit it right on the head. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to do that if you could somehow uh, etch a sketch those Mets days out? Uh, you know, I, I've done some work politically behind the scenes <laughs> right. as far as uh, running for office or something like that. No, I, yeah, I don't see that happening. <laughs> There's some skeletons in there. Yes, Michael. <laughs> David, it's a pleasure. Good to see you again. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. That's David Cohn. I'm Michael Kay. And this is Center Stage.